Return to the Word is made possible by faithful supporters like you. Find out more at returntotheword.com. Welcome to the broadcast ministry of Return to the Word with Pastor Mark Fontecchio, advancing the message of God's amazing grace through the teaching of God's Word. And now, here is pastor and author Mark Fontecchio. A man by the name of David Wheeler told the true account of the time he officiated at a funeral. Now, in much of the country, it is still the tradition after the funeral for the people attending the funeral to leave the funeral home and follow in their cars, following that long processional all the way to the cemetery. Well, the hearse led this processional, followed by David, since he was the preacher, Then all the families and all the friends of the deceased. But you see, David had a problem. David had a problem. During the drive to the cemetery, David needed to get rid of some coffee. David needed to stop at the restroom. He couldn't wait much longer. I mean, what do you do, Dan? You got a problem? You got to go? You got to go. And even if he did try to wait, how many cemeteries have public restrooms? So... As they were driving along in his procession, David spotted an abandoned roadside picnic area that had an old outhouse, and he thought, this is my chance. He figured no one would miss him. This procession would just keep going on. He'd just slip in, do what he had to do, get back, show up at the cemetery. It'd be fine. No one would notice. So he pulled into that picnic area, assuming everyone would just keep on going and follow the hearse to the cemetery and he'd catch up. But he assumed incorrectly because when he emerged from the outhouse, there was a whole entire long line of cars patiently waiting for him. Moral of the story is people follow leaders, but churches must ask the question before placing men into leadership, where will this person lead them? Where will he lead them? Will he lead them to follow Jesus Christ or will he lead them to the outhouse? Churches are picking their leaders without regard to the standards of God. Rick Warren's church just on Thursday ordained three female pastors. Again, I say churches are picking their standards without accordance to the standards of God. Sometimes it's about a popularity contest even though the men involved have little wisdom to offer, little knowledge of the scriptures to offer. Other churches have goofy traditions that certain people in leadership positions should always hold these positions, that they just don't ever change. Same families, year after year, controlling churches. Or it becomes about who you know, what business you own, how much money you have or can give, to the church. Churches tend to favor the wealthy. There's nothing wrong with having money, especially if you've worked hard for it. But just because a person is wealthy, it does not make them qualified to lead the church of Jesus Christ. Wisdom doesn't always accompany wealth. Have you ever noticed that some people are just so jealous and so impressed with people because they have money? Sometimes a wealthy person is where they are at because of hard work and because they're a good steward of what God has entrusted to them. But other times they're where they're at because they're dishonest, they're ruthless, without humility and without restraint. Money 
Wealth is not a qualification for leadership in the church, nor is it an indicator of spiritual maturity. But how you use what God has entrusted to you, that certainly is. This morning, we're going to challenge. We're going to challenge the leadership qualifications seen in churches today. But men, I want to challenge you. I want to challenge the men of this church to see this list as something to inspire to, to something to aspire to in your own life, to be above reproach because leadership starts in the home. So we start our time this morning with verse one of first Timothy three. Paul writes, this is a faithful saying. If a man desires the position of a bishop, he desires a good work. A man can desire the position of bishop. The first verb, if a man desires, gives the image of reaching out after, aspiring to. And the second verb for desires, where Paul wrote, he desires a good work. This is a strong, intense, emotional desire. See, both verbs are telling us something. They tell us that any dedicated and qualified man can become eligible for the position. It is up to the local church. See, I believe in the local church because the word of God celebrates the local church as God's instrument. It's up to the local church to determine whether a believer has met these qualifications or not and should be lifted up to serve in this type of position. But hear me carefully. There's a difference between ambition and aspiration. There's a big difference. You see, if you have ambition to be in leadership, You want to gain power. You want to be in leadership for power, for control, for for something that you can get out of it yourself. But if you aspire to leadership, you care less about the position than you do about becoming worthy of it. And Paul is talking about aspiring to leadership in the church. It is the aspiration that causes a young man to study, to labor, to sacrifice in order to equip himself for leadership in the church of Jesus Christ. Leadership in a church is not easy. I got some firsthand experience there. It's not easy. It is a thankless, dangerous, brutal job. Paul says it's a good work. Now, what position are we describing here in the word of God? Paul says in Timothy, the position of bishop. I want to take a minute to make sure we all understand exactly what we're talking about. Because you see a lot of different church structures all throughout the country. The Bible uses three terms that I see interchangeably to refer to the same position. Bishop, episcopos, elder, presbuteros, and pastor, poimen. Now, these are the same positions, and we can prove this easy enough from the scriptures. Watch for these words. Watch for these terms as I read. Watch for them first in Acts 20. It says, after Paul summoned the Ephesian elders, notice the term, he said to them, take heed to yourselves and all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God. Then in 1 Peter 5, Peter also made the same identification when he addressed the elders. When he's addressing the elders, he said, shepherd the flock of God, which is among you, serving as overseers, thereof not by compulsion, but willingly, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. Now, the concept of a bishop is one who oversees. And when the Bible talks about an elder, it's referring to the maturity and dignity of the position. 
Now, Jewish men, we know this from the Old Testament, they, they held this title in the Sanhedrin that they were older. And their age and their power and their status, it brought them respect because they were old. In the church, it's not about an age requirement, not at all. But instead, it's about the idea of spiritual maturity and respect for their strength in Jesus Christ. And with the title pastor, the English translations only have at one time in Ephesians 4.11, where it is referring to the gifts of pastoring and teaching. But typically, in the New Testament, the Greek word is translated shepherd. It refers to a shepherd over a flock of sheep. And the duty of of a pastor is primarily what? This is so important because churches get this wrong. The duty of a pastor is primarily feeding the sheep, teaching them the word of God. That's the primary duty of a pastor. Second, the pastor is to provide oversight to the work of the church, to make sure the church and the work of Christ is being done correctly, to protect the church from bad doctrine. I'm not really interested in traditions. I don't care what traditions say about church structure and how the denominations define bishops and pastors and elders from the second century and on. I don't care. I'm interested in the first century church. I want to know what the New Testament church thought. And the Bible teaches that a pastor and a bishop and an elder are one and the same, but how many should each church have? That's a question. Well, in first Timothy 5.17, the word elders is plural. It's plural. Let the elders who rule, it says. It shows that one church can have more than one pastor or one elder. But this doesn't mean necessarily that a church is to have a board of lay elders sitting over a pastor telling him what to preach, what to teach. See, I was preaching at a church and here in the valley, a very large church, a huge church. And I met with one of the elders after I preached, and he told me that he was in love with this movie about the shack, the shack, some of you know of it, where God is depicted as a woman. And I sat at lunch eating my little salad, and I sat listening to this elder telling me all this deplorable doctrine that he embraced. It was horrible, hearing some of the things he was saying. And then just a few seconds later, the man tells me, At our church, we have an elder board to help keep the pastor in check. That's not biblical. There can be a plurality of men. Absolutely. Absolutely. But not with a a board of people that don't know what they're doing, sitting over a pastor telling him what to preach. That's arrogant and it's degrading. And it's an automatic disqualifier for me. I will not serve in a church that has that type of structure. I won't. Some of the New Testament churches had more than one pastor, more than one elder, especially in the cities that had several house churches. It seems that each house church had one elder, and the church was seen as all the members within that city. Now, that wouldn't work today because we have denominations and all the goofy stuff we have today. But the lesson we walk away with from the New Testament is that the number of pastors, the number of elders, it wasn't set. It's not set in stone. There's not some magic formula that we have to write down and and inscribe upon Pioneer Baptist Church. It depended on the need of each church. And you know what else it depended on, guys? It depended on the availability of qualified men 
qualified men. See, you never put a man into a position if he's not qualified. You just don't do it. In 1 Timothy 3, there's a notable contrast here between a single bishop and multiple deacons. Not all the churches had more than one elder in the New Testament. Only men can serve as a pastor. I mentioned Rick Warren before. They just celebrated that they ordained at their church three female pastors. Well, that flies in the face of the book of 1 Timothy in Scripture. And because of the time it takes to serve, to labor in the church, and to labor in the Word of God, pastors are to be supported financially by the church as much as possible. Now, I know not everybody in a church understands how much work goes in to the ministry. And I know for the four years that I have been here, every week has been 60 to 70 hours, sometimes easily much more. My wife, my poor wife, pray for her, encourage her, strengthen her. These are the heroes of the church in the front row right here. She puts in 20 to 30 hours a week after she goes to her job all day long and teaches school. I'd be fired from that job, by the way, in about 30 seconds. I couldn't put up with teenagers. And each of my kids, all my kids, even Doodles, put in several hours a week helping out on all the things you don't see. Micah was down here when I was working on the light bulb, and he, had very, he hadn't slept in like 36 hours or something goofy like that, and he's helping me work on a light bulb hours every week. I'm telling you this to support your pastor, support the work of Christ. Get involved in some of the work here to help take the load off. And we're starting to see that. And I celebrate that. Matt has done some heavy lifting on the building, and it's appreciated. Rick has found some ministry and just wanted to help out. And you know what? I was tickled pink yesterday. We were bowling, and, and I mentioned I'm going to be, Lord willing, planting some trees this week. And Sam just came up to me and said, you want some help, brother? He's going to come out Tuesday and give me a hand. Find your ministry here. Get involved. Some of you are doing that. Praise God. I thank you for that. Learn to come to church to serve. Help out with the building. Help care for the elderly. Find the elderly. There's a, quite a few that are not here this morning. Find their names. Get their numbers. Ask Angie Baby for their contact information. Give them a call. Say, we love you. We miss you. How can we help you? Learn to come to church to serve. A heart of a servant will get involved and find places to serve. But the work of being a pastor means that each man should be qualified. Verse 2 says this, A bishop then must be blameless, the husband of one wife, temperate, sober-minded, of good behavior, hospitable, and able to teach. God wants to use those with a heart to serve. God wants to use them. Being in leadership is thankless. And it's an emotionally draining job. Pastors struggle because of the high demands that are put on them. See, there's a lot of Christians today who expect perfection from their pastors, but have little expectations from themselves. You know, it's been said that the perfect pastor preaches only 12 minutes, but yet in that time, he flawlessly expounds the deep truths of Scripture. He condemns sin, but he never upsets anyone. And he works on his sermons from 8 in the morning till 10 at night. And then he cleans the church. And he makes $100 a week. He wears good clothes. He drives a good car. And he gives $150 a week to the church. He's 28 years of age and has been preaching for 30 years. 
He has a burning desire to work with teenagers and spends all his time with the senior citizens. He makes 15 calls a day to the families in the church, visits the shut-ins and the hospitalized, prays over the sick and the needs of the congregation, spends all his time evangelizing, and is always, always, always in the office when needed. And he knows every member of the congregation, but never gets close enough to see their sin. Obviously, no pastor can live up to these expectations, and nor should they even try. Did you know 80% of pastors today believe the ministry is negatively impacting their families? 33% of pastors today go so far as to say being in the ministry is a hazard to their family. 40% of pastors have at least one serious conflict with a person in the church once a month. 70% do not have someone in the church or outside of the church that they consider to be a close friend. 50% of all pastors today in the United States have considered leaving ministry in the last three months. 50% of those who go into full-time ministry will drop out within five years. And here's the lesson. Don't go to seminary because it's worse if you go to seminary. 80% of those who graduate from seminary are out in the first five years never to return to full-time ministry. And only 10%, 10% of all pastors will stay in the ministry long-term and actually retire as a pastor Between 1,400 and 1,600 Christian pastors leave the ministry in the United States permanently every month to never return. 80% of pastors and 85% of their spouses feel extremely discouraged in their roles. And you know what I'm hearing around the world? I'm hearing in countries and denominations all around this country and in the world. They're talking about the empty pulpit crisis. They can't find qualified men Keywords, qualified men, willing to fill those positions. Now, I don't tell you this because I want your pity. I don't care about that. I tell you this because first, if you desire to go into the ministry, oh, oh, you better prepare. You better prepare because you will face one of the most challenging situations in your life. And it's also one of the most rewarding experiences of your life. But it's harder than you think if you do it right, if you do it God's way. But it's also very rewarding. Second, I tell you these things because if we want to have a strong church going forward, a church that lasts long after my time here, get involved in the work of Jesus Christ and start helping out. Find your ministry. You see, God designed the church to be equipped and gifted by him so that the body of Christ can effectively minister Be the body of Christ. Serve like God intends you to serve. Paul says elders, pastors are to be blameless. It doesn't mean perfect, thank God. But above reproach, not given to sin. It's about a man's maturity in Christ and reputation. A man that knows what it means to live in fellowship with God. Walking with God is the consistent pattern of his life, not the exception He's not the type of man that opens himself up to scandals. We got too much of that in the church of Jesus Christ today. He's not living a a life of disgrace of what it means to live for Jesus Christ. It means that since he has matured in Christ, no one can bring a charge against him that he is being immoral. The pastor 
must be the husband of one wife. The Greek text says, I love it, a one woman man. There can be no infidelity. Not someone who divorces and remarries because he wants to trade up or get a younger model. Not someone given to pornography or affairs. A one woman man is devoted to his wife, absolutely devoted to his wife. There are no other women in his life, real or imagined. He is totally faithful to his wife. And he must be temperate, clear-headed, wise, cautious, alert to what's going on around him. His mind and his judgment are clear. He must be sober-minded, of sound mind, someone who thinks straight. Some people think that this means sober-minded here, that the pastor can't have any humor. Boy, am I glad that's not what it means, because I'd be in trouble. It's about being clear-minded is the idea, clear thinking, that there's clear thinking going on of good behavior, living an orderly life, hospitable, friendly, able to teach. Pastors must have the ability to teach. First, they must prepare themselves, though. You can't teach if you're not prepared. Bible college and seminary absolutely can be a big help, but it can never fully prepare a man for ministry. It can't. It is a responsibility found in the local church of Jesus Christ to train up men of God. A pastor must have the ability to understand the Bible and able to communicate it with his people. Now, it does not necessarily mean that every pastor has to be able to preach, but at least one-on-one -on -one or in small groups, he has the ability to teach the Word of God, share the Word of God with others. Being able to teach God's Word is not something that comes by accident. You don't just wake up one morning and say, hey, that closed book in my office, I understand it now. It doesn't work like that pastor must be first a student of the word of God. And let me just say a lazy pastor is a disgrace to the pulpit. A man seeking to lead the church of God must be able to defend the faith, proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ, able to lead others in the understanding of God's grace. He must be a diligent student of the word of God. See, what Paul is getting at is that the to be a church leader, it's a huge responsibility. It's a heavy responsibility because the church does not belong to me. It doesn't belong to you. It belongs to the living God. Then in verse 3, we read this. Not given to wine, not violent, not greedy for money, but gentle, not quarrelsome, not covetous. Wine was a common beverage in the first century. The pastor must not be a constant drinker. Now, you would think that this would be a given. You'd think this would be obvious. But I stayed with a pastor once when I was giving a conference at his church, and I was a little surprised. Every evening after they put their kids to bed, the pastor and his wife numbed the pain to their ministry by drinking one bottle after another. It's a poor testimony. But it's a testimony of a man who doesn't rely on the sufficiency of God. And even though this man went to Bible college and he went to seminary, he even has a Ph.D. in the Bible, he still, every night, has to numb his mind to escape his thoughts. And let me also just say this while we're on the topic, that while the scriptures do not forbid the drinking of alcohol for the saints of God, be advised that most of the drinks with alcohol today have a much higher content of it and would fall into what the Bible warns of as strong drink. It's not something to play around with. Pastors should be gentle, not violent. Do you notice how it's listed by the drinking of wine right by it? Because when a man gets intoxicated, violence is often the result. 
But a man of God must not be a violent man. The work of God is not about using your physical strength or force to get your way. Anybody that thinks like that, that's a small mind. Not greedy for money. This is taken out of some of the modern translations that follow the critical text, but it should be there in the text. A pastor must not be greedy, not in the ministry for financial gain. It's not saying that a pastor shouldn't be paid like anyone else, but it must not be the motivation. Preach the word of God because you believe it is what he's saying, but it must not be the motivation. It's not the reason to take a job. Don't take advantage of the congregation. It's the opposite of the prosperity message that's being proclaimed today. Gentle, considerate, not angry, but long-suffering, patient beyond all belief, because trust me, you have to be. You have to be patient. Not quarrelsome, not a fighter. Some people are always looking for a fight, and I don't understand quite why, but the man that leads the church of God is not to be that. A quarrelsome person is really, what are they doing? They're self-seeking. They're self-seeking, disrespectful of others, and only considers himself, never the opinions of others. Not a contentious man, not splitting churches, but instead committed to the ministry of reconciliation. He fights the good fight of faith. He's not covetous, but content with less. Angie and I live in a small house so we can live on less, so I can afford to serve here. I have hobbies that we have specifically chosen as hobbies that are cheap or free. We go hiking, we go biking, we go tent camping in a tent because I want to use what God has given me for his work. This is why Angie and I give generously to the church because we try to be an example to you guys to be generous and have a faithful dependence upon God. Some people Some Christians are so intent on spending every spare dime for themselves, and that is not the type of person you want as your pastor. That is not a leader of the church. That is an immature person in the faith. Have you ever seen one of those pastors who always has some sort of scheme, some sort of side deal where they're trying to make money on the side? Not a job, not a part-time job. I'm not talking that, but a side deal. Always trying to, hey, if we do this, we can flip this or sell this and make a little extra money doing this. And what these men don't even realize when they're always scheming, trying to make a way to make money, they, they don't even realize they're eroding their own testimony for Christ. See, I think what Scripture's saying is that a pastor should only have one devotion in life, one treasure, and that's God. That's God himself. The inner qualities described by Paul give the picture of a man who is a team player, yet he has the strength and wisdom to think for himself. He can lead, but he doesn't seek to always be in control. He speaks his mind, but he doesn't always need to be heard. He doesn't crave attention. But a pastor deals with all types of people, and the family of God is intended by God's design to be the basic unit of society. The pastor must be successful in the home. Otherwise, he cannot. He cannot lead the church. Verses 4 and 5 tell us this. He must be one who rules his own house well, having his children in submission with all reverence. For if a man does not know how to rule his own house, how will he take care of the church of God? Back in 2010 and 2011, Levi Strauss was still running their ad campaign, and it angered a lot of liberals. It was hilarious. It targeted men for a line of Docker's pants. I shared this before with you, but let me read it again because it's fantastic. It's just fantastic. Here's what the ad said. This is a throwback to the times in this country when you could say things like this on TV. 
Here's the ad. Once upon a time, men wore the pants and they wore them well. Women rarely had to ever open doors and little old ladies never had to cross the street alone. Men took charge because that's what they did. But somewhere along the line, the way the world decided, it no longer needed men. Disco by disco, latte by foamy, non-fiat latte, men were stripped of their khakis and left stranded on the road between boyhood and androgyny. But today, listen to this line, but today there are questions our genderless society has no answers for. The world sits idly by as cities crumble, children misbehave, and those little old ladies remain on the side of the street. For the first time since bad guys, we need heroes. We need grown-ups. We need men to put down the plastic fork, step away from the salad bar, and untie the world from the tracks of complacency. It's time to get your hands dirty. It's time to answer the call of manhood. It's time to wear the pants. Fantastic ad. Writing to Timothy, Paul's saying, put on your pants. He's saying, hey, I have in mind the leaders of the church of Ephesus, and he's telling them, be a man. Be a real man. Be a man of God. Be a man of faith that raises your children well. Years ago now, we had someone who came through these doors who desperately, so desperately wanted to be in ministry, but he was an absentee father, and his kids and his life was entirely out of control. And I had to tell him, and this angered him, that he did not qualify for the ministry because of verses 4 and 5. Men, learn to rule your house well. A man's family is also part of his work for the Lord. So if you fail to minister with your family, you fail to qualify to be a minister in the church of God. Howard Hendricks, he used to say to men in seminary, I love that guy. He used to say to men in seminary, if your Christianity isn't working at home, please don't export it. It was his way of saying, if you can't make your faith work in your family, then please don't try to make it work in the family of God because it's not going to help the church. See, the test of a true leader is what happens in the privacy of his own home, not the kind of show he's able to put on on Sunday mornings at church. You know, even the Puritans understood this back in the day. They viewed the home as a little church and a place to examine whether or not a man had the ability to teach and lead a church. And that's what Paul is getting at. So men, I want you to be careful with this verb here, that you are to rule your house well. It doesn't mean be a dictator. It doesn't mean to shout at them. It means actually to stand before them, to stand before. You stand before them, not above them. It is the role of the husband to govern the affairs of the family. He is to govern it, direct it, manage his household. He stands before his wife and children to lead and guide them not to shout down at them. Pastor must rule well. The people of the church should look to the pastor and say, I want to have a family that's something like his. But I want you to notice something important. It says children. It says techno in the, in the Greek. It says children. It's talking about children. When looking for leaders in a church, you're not looking at the adult children. Because once they're adults, hey, they're responsible for themselves. Glory to God. Be the habit of life that an elder rules his house well. 
The children are to be in submission, submitting to the headship of the father. And certainly Ephesians 6, 4 comes to mind. And you fathers, do not provoke your children to wrath, but bring them up in the training and admonition of the Lord. Now, Paul's logic in 1 Timothy 3 is perfect. It's impossible for a poor father to become a good pastor. It's impossible. If you can't lead one family, you don't have the privilege of leading more because the church is the family of God. If you haven't proved faithful at home, you won't prove faithful in the church. The home is the proving ground for the church leadership. Now, this is not about 100% obedience in your children. Every home has its problems from time to time. Absolutely, every home does. But the mood of the family should be obedience, love, honor, respect. This is about asking the question, does the man create a calm, structured home environment designed to glorify Jesus Christ? Does his children respect him? Do his children honor him? Do they care about him? Because a father with children out of control cannot, cannot lead a church. And neither should he. Because a man like this needs to be at home, spending his time at home, there, taking care of his ministry, his first ministry, his responsibility in the home. Be in the home, men. Be there in the home as much as you possibly can and be involved in the lives of your family. Treat your children with respect, but teach them the meaning of no the first time. One of the hardest jobs of parenting is making sure your children realize that no is a complete sentence. It is a complete sentence. It is. Amen. Amen. Yes. You want your children to respect you. So it's not just about yelling constantly. There has to be teaching, explaining, coming alongside down to their level and explaining. But no means no the first time. If the children respect your walk in Christ at home, it indicates the parents are doing their job the correct way. You know, churches today, they're messed up for a lot of reasons. They focus on a lot of things when they hire a pastor. But you will notice that Paul, what was Paul focused on? He was focused on character and a man's walk with Jesus Christ. See, Paul is more concerned with the personal integrity of men than with their education. And the reason is because the New Testament, if you notice this, when you start looking at church structure and how we work and function, it doesn't spell out exactly all the details of how the church is to operate. But it depends greatly on something. It depends on the character of the men making the decisions, spiritual men who set a good example and have the respect and confidence of the people. These men are not to be a special class of Christians. These are the same standards every man in this church, guys, every man in this church should strive for, be known for. See, here's our goal here at Pioneer Baptist Church. This is our goal, that we have so many men living like this, that we have a list of men that we select our leadership from. Glory to God. And the only thing that's stopping us is us, our weakness in the faith. And then we read, starting in verse 6, not a novice, let us... Being puffed up with pride, he fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Moreover, he must have a good testimony among those who are outside, lest he fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Not a novice. Literally, the word is not a new plant. Not a new plant. He's green. 
There needs to be evidence of spiritual growth and maturity because otherwise they could get lifted up, puffed up in pride. Age is not a guarantee of maturity in the faith. Plenty of older saints are still weak in the faith, but a new believer does not qualify automatically. They don't. You've heard that term before, puffed up. The Greek wording is based on the idea of smoke that comes from a smoldering fire. And so the idea is that the influence of being exalted in a position of leadership can put such a cloud of smoke in a person's spiritual eyes that he cannot see for himself what he really is. And this type of man could fall into the same condemnation as the devil. Not meaning such a person would be cast down into the lake of fire. Just meaning they could fall from their position just like Satan did. Pride has put Satan in the bind he's in. Pride is what puts Satan where he's at. So it's the responsibility of the church. It's our responsibility here to hold back new converts in the faith, keeping them back from church leadership. See, a leader in the church should have a good reputation, testimony outside the church with unbelievers. So he doesn't bring reproach on the name of Jesus Christ. So does he pay his bills? Does he have a good reputation with the people he works with or does business with? There is a testimony for Jesus Christ that needs to be maintained. And I'll tell you what, Satan loves to attack leaders in a church. He loves to attack pastors. He loves it nothing more than to bring disgrace to the work of God through the leaders of the church before a world that sits there and watches in disbelief. The world is watching all of us. The world is watching. Satan's looking to trap you. So maintain your integrity. Maintain your testimony for Jesus Christ. One of the first books I ever read on how to study the Bible was by this man. Dr. Robertson McQuilkin. It's called Understanding and Applying the Bible. You can get it online for just a few bucks. It is a fantastic book. It changed my life. Now, Robertson is one of my heroes in the faith, but it's not even about this book. Let me tell you why. Dr. Robertson had an incredible ministry. He had a large ministry. He authored many, many books. You can still see them on Amazon. They all got five stars. He was the president of Columbia Bible College, very educated, very intelligent. He served in many roles until his wife entered into the advanced stages of Alzheimer's disease. In March of 1990, McQuilkin announced his resignation in a letter with these words. Here's what he said. I want you to listen to me. He said, my dear wife, Muriel, has been in failing mental health for eight years So far, I have been able to carry both her ever-growing needs and my leadership responsibilities at CBC, Columbia Bible College. But recently, it has become apparent that Muriel is contented most of the time she's with me, and almost none of the time I'm away from her. It's not just discontent. She is filled with fear, even terror, that she has lost me and always goes in search of me whenever I leave home. Then she may be full of anger when she cannot get to me, so it's clear that she needs me now. She needs me full time. Perhaps it would help you to understand if I shared with you what I shared at the time of my announcement of my resignation in chapel. You see, this decision was made in a way 42 years ago when I promised to care for Muriel in sickness and in health till death do us part. So as I told the students and faculty, as a man of my word, integrity has something to do with it. 
but so does fairness. She has cared for me fully and sacrificially all these years. If I cared for her for the next 40 years, I would not be out of debt. Duty, however, can be grim and stoic, but there's more. And he wrote this. He says, I love Muriel. She's a delight to me. Her childlike dependence and confidence in me, her warm love, occasional flashes of that wit is what I used to relish so much that her happy spirit and tough resilience in face of her continually distressing situation. And listen to what he said next. I do not have to care for her. I get to. I get to. It's a high honor to care for such a wonderful person. And with that, Dr. McQuilkin just closed the door on his public ministry, stepping away from the spotlight to care for his wife. And I suggest to you that this was a one woman man. And it's no wonder to me that a man with this type of character rose to leadership in the first place. I have a lot more respect for this man because of his commitment to his wife than I do because of his degrees or the books that he wrote or his accomplishments as a president of a great Christian university. Men like this are leaders and guys, I'm begging you, I'm telling you, we desperately, desperately need them here and in the church at large. The church needs men like this. So respect them. Respect those that lay down their lives for others for the sake of Jesus Christ. Pray for the leadership of this church daily. Be the type of men in this church that is leadership material, walking with integrity, leading in the homes. Be a man. Put on the pants and be a man. Live with a good testimony and use the abilities and spiritual gifts God has given you to work together as a church. Because when you don't come and when you don't work together as a church, you cripple the church. You weaken the church from within. Every man in this room should be seeking to grow in the grace of God, seeking to live out the teaching of 1 Timothy, encouraging others to follow God. It's not the role of the pastor to do most everything in the church. It's not my job. It's not the role of the pastor's family to be left doing it. But it is absolutely my job to equip you, to help you learn to use what the God-given gifts that you have to serve Jesus Christ. You're not here for one hour a week or one hour a month. You're here to serve Jesus Christ. Ephesians 4 teaches us that pastors were given to the church for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry. Every good church needs good leaders. But you know what? They're grown slowly. It takes time. They're grown slowly over time. And you can spot a healthy church a mile away by the spiritual maturity of the men in it. So who you are matters no matter where you are, at home, at church, at work, or even out there this summer in Alaska. But do me this favor. Don't wait for the title. Learn to serve, learn to obey God because of his grace. Paul said this to Titus, and young people, take heed to this. He said, likewise, exhort the young men to be sober-minded in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works in doctrine, showing integrity, reverence, incorruptibility, sound speech that cannot be condemned. Why? That no one who is an opponent may be ashamed, having nothing evil to say of you. Learn, men, learn to serve the God we love, and may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, 
and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. Return to the Word Ministries is committed to teaching the full counsel of God's Word and the gospel of Jesus Christ. For more about our ministry, please visit returntotheword.com. Return to the Word is a faith ministry. This means we freely distribute the teaching of the Word of God over the air and online. We do this without charge. If you feel led to support the ministry with a donation to help cover these costs, you may do so on our website, returntotheword.com, or by mailing a donation to Return to the Word, P.O. Box 879-259, Wasilla, Alaska, 99687. Thanks for listening, and we pray that the Word of God will be a lamp unto your feet and a light unto your path. Join us next time for another edition of Return to the Word.